Well, thank you, Jim, for reading the scriptures. Um, it's always good to, to hear the whole thing in context. Please keep your Bibles open. We're going to be walking through this chapter verse by verse. Uh, wanted to show that video um, before uh, the, the message because if you've never seen it before, um, it's really cool. It gives a, a really good picture, overarching picture of the grand redemptive storyline of Scripture. Um, and we have these, uh, a few of these little um, booklets that gives a summary of the video up here on this table um, that you can grab right after uh, the service. There's also an app for that where you can find that video for free. So if you go to the App Store, um, whether you're Android or iPhone person, and search for uh, the story, then uh, you should be able to, to find that. And um, it's, a, it's a great resource uh, to train yourself and to have in the back of your head really um, a good picture of the gospel as you're talking to folks. Um, and so in our Genesis study so far, we've been walking through chapters 1 and 2, uh, and, and they contain the creation account. So we're going to be in chapter 3 uh, tonight at a, a pretty high level. Um, and since we're covering an entire chapter, it's going to be a little longer than last week's. Because last week was only like seven verses, all right? Um, and, and so, but we won't be here too long. But um, just like um, if, you, if you had a really good Thanksgiving meal, I hope you did. Um, Allie makes some of the best broccoli casserole in the whole world. And so I get to enjoy that once a year, it seems like, which is really awesome. Um, but there's always leftovers, right? Um, I promise you there will be leftovers after we eat tonight, okay? There's a lot in this passage, okay? So, so there's a lot of themes in this passage. Um, you're going to see uh, temptation. You're going to see lies. You're going to see the enemy. You're going to see the fall. You're going to see sin. You're going to see consequences of disobedience. You're going to see uh, the gospel, grace, mercy. Um, there's a lot in here. It's power-packed. Um, and each of these really, honestly, it, they could be a sermon in and of themselves. Um, so we could be in Genesis 3 for like until next year. But, um, but we're, we're, we're going to cover it tonight. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. Um, this morning, uh, as I, me and Allie were reading this chapter with our boys, um, they were shocked to hear that this is the saddest chapter in the whole Bible. This is the saddest chapter in the whole Bible. But there's still glimmers of God's grace and mercy, which is beautiful. And so it's important for us to understand uh, before we dive in that as we read this, as we walk through it, this is actual history. Okay, this is not a myth. This actually happened. Uh, the New Testament attests to it. There's a passing reference in Jude 14 to Adam being the first man. Uh, and, and in Luke, in his gospel, he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. You can go look at that in Luke chapter 3. But the big question that we need to, to answer, we need the text to answer, is what, what in the world happened? Because we've, we've covered Genesis 1, we've covered Genesis 2, um, we've seen that we're in paradise, and then here we, we look around and we see that it's not paradise anymore, life's not hunky-dory, everything isn't great, so what went wrong? What actually happened? And so um, as we look around the world, we see that. It's not hard to have a conversation with somebody and say, like, what do you think is wrong? What do you think is wrong with people? What do you think is wrong with the world? Why do we see so much pain and, and heartache? And, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of people like to, to blame other things. They don't like to look inside themselves. So I pray that tonight that we would be honest with ourselves. I pray that as we read this text, as we walk through this text, that we would not be like, man, that stinking woman. 
And Adam, what in the world? But I pray that we would say, oh man, I, I, I could have been Adam. I could have been Eve. I, I would have probably done the exact same thing they did. And so let's look inside our own hearts. Let's do a, as we, as we, as we do that, as we make a survey of kind of the culture that we live in right now and just look around the world, like we, we see um, imperfection. We see brokenness. We, we see lies. We see suffering. We see pain. We see disease. We see distortion and poverty, greed, selfishness, evil, and death. So what happened? What went wrong? Let's pray before we dive into the text. Father, I pray right now that as we read your word, as we study your word, that you would do what only you can do. You would grant to us understanding. That you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us eyes to see. Father, that you would turn our hearts towards you. Father, I pray that you would turn hearts towards yourself for the very first time. That you would grant conviction. Lord, that you would challenge us. And that, that we would leave not only convicted but, but encouraged. That we see that we are not in a hopeless state that you have given us such hope in the midst of such hopelessness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, starting in verse one, Genesis chapter three says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And you have to remember that the original audience of Genesis were the Israelites, okay? And they were facing pagan nations who worshiped a lot of false gods in various forms. One of the symbols of those false gods was a serpent, Right? In, in his commentary, Alan Ross says, if the nations of the ancient Near East surrounding Israel venerated the serpent as the life-giving goddess of the earth, then the representation in this passage strikes a remarkably antithetical theme. So they would have immediately picked up on that as they're re reading this and, and hearing it read. Before now, we, we've been introduced to Adam and, and, and the woman and, and God as the, the main characters in the scene. And now we have this new character come on the scene. Right, the, the serpent or the devil, a.k.a. Satan, the adversary, the enemy of both God and man. Who, who is this? Where did he come from? Right, he's a created being. He's a fallen angel. Lucifer is his name, one of the most beautiful, one of the most powerful angels. Yet he rebelled against God, and because of his pride, he wanted to be God. And so he got kicked out of heaven. Revelation 12, 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan takes the form of a serpent and approaches Eve. Now, you have to ask, why Eve? Why didn't he go to Adam? Because he wanted to attack God's created order. He possesses this animal and approaches the woman to get to the man, right? God's created order and the authority which he had, had given was, was God, it was man, it was woman, and then it was animal. Satan reverses that, right? And we're going to see that later in, in detail. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's interesting to note, this is the first question in the entire Bible, and it's it's very, it's very tricky because God's enemy is speaking through an animal to the woman and he questions God's word. The enemy will always sow doubt. Kent Hughes keenly points out that the serpent carefully avoided using God's personal covenant name, 
Yahweh. He doesn't, he doesn't say Yahweh Elohim, which we have seen before in Genesis 1 and 2 when he's referring to God. Okay? He draws Eve's attention away from God and seeks to get her to depersonalize their relationship. He succeeds because Eve follows suit and she doesn't use Yahweh Elohim again in this discourse. Notice what he is doing is, is he's twisting God's word. He says, any tree? Really? Any tree? He's throwing shade on God's goodness. He's dragging God's character through the dirt. Remember that we've seen that when God speaks, he brings order and life. Now, when Satan speaks, he brings chaos and death. So that's how you can tell the difference between the voice of truth and the voice of the enemy in your own life. What did God really say to Adam and Eve? If you look back at Genesis 1, 29, Listen to how gracious and generous God is. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Not just any tree, every tree. So you can see how Satan is, in Genesis 3.1, is telling a bold-faced lie. He's twisting God's truth. How does Eve answer the serpent? If you look at verse 2, this is what she says. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So remember, this is a pre-fall conversation. Right? Sin hasn't entered the world yet. So why did she not think, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering as I'm reading this, like an animal is speaking to me. Like what, what was going through her mind? Like why didn't she say, you shouldn't be talking? Right? Um, or, or like, why are you lying? Because she knew the truth. And she continues in verse three. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she adds to what God actually said. What did God really say? If you look at Genesis 2, 16 through 17, the Lord God commanded them saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So God was very clear. Everything is yours to enjoy except for the one tree, because if you eat of it, you're going to die. God didn't say you can't touch it, but Eve added that. God said, you, you, you shouldn't eat of it. Eve minimizes the freedom that God gave of them to eat freely of all the other trees, and she adds to God's command, and then she weakened the punishment for disobedience by saying, lest you die, when God said, you will surely die. So the serpent and Eve are both not focusing on God's good, gracious generosity. They're actually only focusing on his prohibition. So let's not forget that God's prohibition was because of his love. It's not because he's a killjoy. He's clearly not a killjoy, as we've seen in, in chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis 2, 9, he said, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the eye. It's, it's, a, it's aesthetically ap appealing and good for food. It's going to be delicious. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he's not a killjoy, right? He's actually the author of joy, and the creator of the things that we get to take pleasure in on this earth. You know, I was having a conversation with um, Carson, my pinwheel kid, um, a few weeks ago. And we, were, um, we saw a, a hearse drive by as we were outside reading. And I said, Carson, do you know what, what that is? Do you know who's, who's in there? And, and so that led into talking about death, talking about life, talking about where we're going to all end up one day. And so we started talking about the gospel, and, um, and then he asked a question that maybe you have asked yourself. He said, 
why did God put the tree in the garden in the first place if he knew that they were going to eat of it? I was like, that's a really good question, right? Then I explained how God wanted loving, willing obedience. He didn't create us to be robots, right? As humans, we have a will. God doesn't long for begrudging submission of us. He longs for an enjoyable relationship with us. If you look at verse 4 and 5, it says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the enemy's tactics, they haven't really changed much from this day. He's still twisting God's word today. He's still sowing doubt. He's still trying to convince humans that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He says, you won't surely die. So he's calling God a liar. He's saying that God won't keep his word, that he's not trustworthy. Kent Hughes says, this is an in-your-face to God. The Hebrew word places um, low or not right in front of God's declaration. So Satan really said, not you shall surely die. Take that, God. It's the serpent's word versus God's word. It's an absurd juxtaposition. So the devil is still getting humans to question God's word today. He's still directing people away from the truth. He's still spewing lies out of his condemned mouth. Our enemy has always promised a special knowledge, uh, a godlike status, and moral autonomy. Listen to this. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Special knowledge. And you will be like God, divinity, knowing good and evil, moral autonomy. You can choose what's right and wrong. You don't have to listen to God. Curiosity has always been one of my biggest downfalls, personally. I mean, I, I know, um, I, I long to know and, and experience something. And so that's when I do it, right? And when I was in high school, um, I loved listening to Frank Sinatra. Do we have any Frank Sinatra fans in the house? Just a few. Some of you don't even know who that is. Um, I, I had a few Frank Sinatra CDs, in fact. Some of you don't even know what CDs are. Um, but this is one of my favorite songs. Um, I'm not going to sing it for you, all right, because I can't sing. Uh, but he said, fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. Let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, baby, kiss me. Like, girl, your love is out of this world. That's what he's trying to say through this song, right? No one writes music like that anymore, Okay. Um, it's very poetic, it's, it's very beautiful, but it's also very dangerous. And I would sing it all the time. The next stanza says this, fill my heart with song, let me sing forevermore. You are all I long for, all I worship and adore. Does that sound like something you would say to a girl or a God? Right? But I didn't care. I was blind, I didn't know Jesus, and so I sang that a lot. Um, but one of, one of Frank's songs that I loved the most because I was a selfish jerk was, was this one. And now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. And the last stanza says this, For what is man, what has he got? 
If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that he truly feels and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show I took all the blows and I did it my way. We've wanted to do things our own way since we were born. Eve was tempted to do things her way, right? The reality is my way leads to death every single time. If you choose to be someone who says, in the words of Frank, not the words of someone who kneels, you're choosing to be godlike. You're, you're, you're choosing what's right and wrong for yourself. You're, you're choosing to be your own God and not to bow your knee to anyone and not to submit to anything that God says. So if you choose your way, you deny God's way. And Satan chose his own way and tempted Eve to do the exact same thing. Ironically, this is the exact sin of pride and idolatry that got Satan kicked out of heaven in the first place. He wanted to be like God. That was his downfall. And since he can't be like God, he got kicked out, right? He hates God and he seeks to destroy God's creation and God's created order. Jesus even said that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus also said in John 8, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's been lying since his very first temptation, right, till today. So let's see how Eve responds to this temptation. And let's see what we can learn in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So maybe you've been wondering during all these six verses, where in the world is the man, right? Here we have the answer. He was with her the whole time, right? And you're you, like, he's like not paying attention. Maybe he's like, he's not protecting her. Maybe, maybe he's not listening to what Satan is saying to his wife. Maybe he's like, oh, look at the birds. I named that one. You know, like who knows what he's doing, but he's, he's not speaking up. He's not standing up for his wife. He's completely doing the opposite of what God created him to do. And so we learn a good bit about temptation from verse 6. It said, Eve saw the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. Well, fast forward to the New Testament. 1 John 2, 16 says, For all of this in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So God didn't tempt Eve or Adam. Satan did. His temptation tactics haven't changed since this moment. Jesus experienced them firsthand. You can read about that in Luke 4, 1 through 13. But in short, the devil tempted Jesus the exact same way that he tempted Eve. Jesus was hungry, so the devil tempted him with the desire of food, with the flesh. Jesus was submitting to the will of the Father, so the devil tempted him with quick access to authority by showing him all the kingdoms of the earth that he could have authority over with his eyes, desires of the eyes. Jesus knew he was the Son of God, but the devil tempted him to prove it, pride of life. So the temptation didn't work on Jesus, but it did work on Adam and Eve. Instead of focusing on God and his word and who they were and the relationship that they had with God, they focused on what they didn't have, even though the only thing they didn't have would kill them. 
Verse 7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sin enters the world and immediately changes everything. This wasn't like a, a slow fade. It was immediate. They could now see what God had tried to protect them from. They now had a knowledge that they didn't have before, but now they don't want. They attempted to fix the problem themselves by covering themselves up. Don't we do the same thing today? We try to fix our own problems. They're ashamed. Genesis 2.25, where we ended last week, they were naked and unashamed, is now reversed in Genesis 3.7. We are all full of shame, and we all have tried to cover up our own mess-ups ever since this day. Which brings us to one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. Look, with it, look at it with me in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of who? Did you pick up on it? The Lord God. Yahweh, Elohim, is used again. The personal name of God is picked back up after temptation is over. They heard him and they ran. Why would they run? Why, why would they hide? Because they felt guilty for the very first time. They were condemned. They felt ashamed for the very first time. And they tried to hide from God in the trees that God had made. Is that not silly? Right? Sin makes us stupid. And ever, whenever we give into it, like, it just makes you dumb. Like, you do dumb things. Like try to hide from your creator in the trees that he created. You can't escape his presence. Right? You can't go anywhere where he's not there. Verse 9 says, But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? So God takes the first step towards the man. God takes the first step to close the gap that the man and the woman had created. This is divine initiative, right? Like, this is not man naturally running to God because we don't do that. We, we naturally run away from God. And here we see that God is seeking Adam out. He's drawing Adam out with the question, where are you? Now, this wasn't a question that God's asking because he doesn't know where Adam is. Of course, he knows where Adam is, and he knows what Adam's doing. This is not like some divine game of hide and seek, right? If you're a father and you've ever played hide and seek with your kids, then you always know where they are, right? You always see their little feet. Or, or their head. Like, you know where they are. Okay, so, so, so God knows where Adam and Eve are. He's trying to get Adam to be the man. He's trying to get Adam to take responsibility for his actions, to get him to own up, to confess. Notice that God goes to the man first. The man is responsible. God didn't go to the serpent first. God didn't go to the woman first. He went to the man first. And Adam's response is another terribly sad verse. Verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So what does God in the garden walking sound like? Right? Like Adam knew that. He knew what that sounded like. Think about the emphasis on the walk. He walked with God. Right? That, that's amazing. 
And so think about the brokenness that enters into creation at this point in time where he tried to run from that. This relationship that Adam and Eve had with God was so intimate that they enjoyed walking and talking with him in paradise. And now they're hiding from him. So there's a few things that we can learn about sin from this one verse. That sin destroys intimacy. It brings fear. Sin brings shame. Sin causes us to run away. Look at Adam's response. Or look at God's response to Adam in verse 11. He said, who told you? that you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So Adam wouldn't have known that he was naked if he hadn't have disobeyed God. And the man said to the woman, he said, he said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So here we have the pointing fingers. We have the name blame game going on right here. Adam points and blames Eve and God. He said, that woman that you gave me, God, instead of saying, yes, it was me. I disobeyed. I ate it. And he doesn't do that. He completely throws Eve under the bus, right? And he basically says, I'm the victim here, God. I went to sleep single and woke up married. You're, you're, the, one, you're the one who gave me the woman, Right, right, and then the woman is the one who gave me the food. It wasn't me. I'm the victim. Adam tries to play the victimhood card, and he, he tries to blame Eve, and he tries to put responsibility on God. And we humans do a really good job of justifying our sin. We always try to explain away our own guilt. And then God gives Eve an opportunity to confess and own up, but she blames the serpent. She points fingers also, and she, then she admits that she, I was lied to, but I also disobeyed. Temptation comes in the form of truth, but it's a lie. A poisonous apple covered in sweet candy, and if you take a bite, then you'll die. Our enemy comes to still kill and destroy. He went to Eve first because he was attacking God's created order. God had created Adam first as their representative head, given him the role of leading and ruling and loving his family and the rest of creation. So God's good created order was man, woman, animal. Satan reverses that when he comes to Eve in the form of a serpent. And so you see animal, woman, man. So what we see in our remaining verses is that God delivers the consequences in that order as well. If you look at verses 14, 16, and 17, he goes animal, woman, man. So let's see what God says. In verse 14, he says, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So he curses the snake specifically. On your belly you will eat dust for the rest of your days. This implies that Prior to this, the snake was most likely upright somehow, or he had legs of some sort, right? Since being on your belly was a curse, right? Eating dust or licking dust in the Old Testament was an expression of total defeat for one's enemies. So the snake for us today is a constant reminder that Satan is a defeated enemy. And then comes verse 15, the first glimmer of hope for humanity. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So now instead of talking to the snake, he's talking to Satan. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the I will in this verse is God taking the initiative yet again. This is divine sovereignty in action. This is divine judgment, and it's also a divine promise. Enmity is a a big word we don't readily use every day, right? It's deep-seated hatred. It's animosity. God's saying to Satan that while he might think that he had just turned humans against God, that he hasn't won. There is no victory for Satan here. Satan thinks because he turned Adam and Eve against God that he's won the day. But God has the last word by saying that he will turn humanity against Satan. If you love God and you hate Satan today, then you are proof that God's word is true, that this has actually happened. Scholars refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium, which is the first gospel promise. And the word offspring in this verse is seed. A seed from the woman will kill Satan. So between your offspring and her offspring, between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. Now, Satan's seed is the unregenerate, the unbelieving, those who choose to believe Satan over God. The woman's seed is interesting because women don't have seed, right? Women have eggs, men have seed. Remember, there's, there's not been a single birth yet in the created order. So Adam was created out of the ground. Eve was created out of Adam. So God's gospel promise is that a man, the male pronoun here is used, he will crush the head of Satan. But there's a problem. Any seed that came out of Adam would be tainted with sin and rebellion because the world is now fallen. So that's why it's so important that the woman's seed wouldn't be from a man, but from God. Only one time in human history has the woman got a seed from God, the Immaculate Conception, right? The virgin birth, where we're about to celebrate Christmas, right? Genesis 3.15 is looking forward to Jesus, the perfect offspring, not from man, but from God. Does anyone um, like to listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving? A few. I have a few people in the room who are like me. So I started listening to Christmas music as we were driving to Thanksgiving. And my boys were like, Daddy, why are you listening to Christmas music? Because it's awesome. And because it's like the best time of the year. And it's right around the corner, right? Um, You remember the, the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Listen to this one verse. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. The God-man, the only one who could turn human hearts from death to life, the only one who could reverse the curse. A messianic interpretation foreshadowing man's ultimate triumph over sin through a savior. So Satan hates procreation anyway, because it's men and women coming together, exercising divine order to produce more image bearers reflecting God in the world. So Satan knew that God's plan of salvation would come through a special offspring. That's why Satan tried to destroy all of the newborns and all the little boys when Jesus was born, right? This savior would be bruised by Satan at the cross, but that would be a minor thing because as Hebrews 2.14 says, God would use Jesus' death to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
So Jesus came to destroy the work of Satan, to crush his head, and to deal a fatal blow to his diabolical plan. Right? Every time someone repents and believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ, another blow is dealt to the enemy. Notice how merciful God is in this passage. He dishes out divine justice and judgment towards Satan, and at the very same time, he gives the first gospel promise to humanity. For while God was talking directly to Satan, you better believe that Adam and Eve were listening, right? They knew exactly what God is saying. And then God turned to the woman in verse 16, and he says this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So besides the curse, pain is yet another consequence from sin entering the world. For Eve, it would be pain in childbearing, but it would also be a struggle for her to submit to her husband's leadership. She would struggle with the position that God had given him as head. So remember pre-fall, husbands and wives, they had a great relationship. They desired unity. And now there's going to be division. It's going to be contrary to one another. And then God turns to the man and he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife, you didn't listen to my voice, and you've eaten of the tree, you disobeyed, you rebelled, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, the earth, the soil, the land. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. He's like, Adam, remember? You were created. I'm the creator. For you are dust. It's a huge reminder for him that he's not God. And to dust you shall return. You will die because of your decision to disobey. So God leaves the most severe consequences to Adam. The curse, the pain, the division that God said would come to the serpent and to Eve also is to Adam and death. So sin entering the world through Adam and Eve's rebellion not only affected their relationship with God and one another, but it also affected the created order. God said, curse is the ground because of you. And in Romans 8, Paul talks about how all of creation groans not only Will Eve groan in childbirth, but all of the cosmos will groan because it's subjected to futility. So the fall is catastrophic for the entire universe. It's interesting to note that the word sin is not found one time in Genesis 3. Yet we see its results everywhere and in every one. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So this is where we get the, the doctrine of original sin, that we all inherited a sinful nature passed down from our original parents. And because of our sin, individually and collectively, sin leads to death. Death, our greatest enemy, enters the world, and sometimes we might be tempted to think that we are better than Adam and Eve or that we would have done better or we would have reacted differently. In reality, we would have done the same thing. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So death comes to all men, all who are still trusting in themselves, who are still refusing to bow their knee, who are still refusing to listen to God, and who are still refusing to submit to God, who remain in Adam. Where life comes to those who are trusting in Jesus, who bow their knee to Jesus, who submit to Jesus, who remain in Christ. For 
Romans 5.17 says, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of your righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So God showed great mercy, and he didn't allow death to overcome Adam and Eve immediately. Even though they didn't die physically, they died spiritually. And yet we see hope because Adam believed God and picked back up doing what God created him to do. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam names Eve, exercising his creator's command and believed that God would bring life even after death. They were still going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God would have been just to immediately kill them. Instead, he had mercy on them. And Adam turned from doubt to belief. Adam believed God's promise in Genesis 3.15. They hadn't even had a child yet, but Adam trusted God's word. The hope of Genesis 3.15, the promised offspring of Eve, would come to pass through Jesus. Jesus would conquer sin and death through the cross and the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the Lord was not only merciful to Adam and Eve, but he was also very gracious, even in the midst of their rebellion. God showed grace and provision towards Adam and Eve because they didn't die immediately. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin was futile. Only God could cover sin sufficiently. Some say that this is the first blood spilt in creation. God slayed an animal to get its hide to create clothes for humans. This is the first sacrifice in the Bible. This is a beautiful picture of the atonement. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This innocent animal was slain instead of Adam and Eve. This is a picture of substitutionary atonement. It's the first picture we see in the Bible of this. God clothing them is a picture of what Jesus would later do for us on the cross by sacrificing his innocent blood to cover our unrighteousness so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Our last few verses say, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then he stops. He can't even finish that sentence. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he had placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God couldn't even fathom the thought of humanity being cursed forever. So he doesn't even finish his, his thought in verse 22. While God drives them out of the garden might seem harsh to us as a cursory reading, it's actually a beautiful example of tough love. There's grace and mercy even in God driving them out of the garden. He knew that if he let them stay in the garden, that they would be tempted to eat of the tree of life and live forever. So he's protecting them in his loving kindness because he doesn't want them to be eternally cursed. Sinful humans can't dwell in God's presence. So to our question from the very beginning, what went wrong? We could say, simply put, that we rebelled against our creator. We rebelled against our creator. We all are just like Adam and Eve. Every one of us, rebels, dead in our sin, apart from Jesus. 
hopeless. Now, this could be a very depressing chapter if we didn't have the glimmers of the gospel and the foreshadowing of hope to come, right? So how in the world should we respond to all of this, right? Or maybe you are feeling the weight of temptation yourself. Maybe you felt that today. Perhaps you're tempted to live your own way, to think that your way is better than God's. Maybe you're tempted to minimize God's word like Eve did. Maybe you're tempted to add to it or take away from it. Maybe you're tempted to be led away and to give into your flesh, to focus on what is seen instead of what is unseen, to gain some kind of wisdom apart from God's word. No one knows the full weight of temptation except for Jesus. If you're experiencing temptation, you can take heart because Jesus understands. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with us. Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. He was tempted, but he didn't give in. He never sinned. So you can turn to the only one who knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. Hear God's promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, we have something that Adam and Eve didn't have. If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you who empowers you to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus. So would you be willing to say no to yourself and yes to Jesus? God drove the man and woman out of the garden, but he knew that later his son would be in a garden and he would do the opposite of what Adam did. Instead of running from God, Jesus would run to his father in prayer. Instead of hiding, he would come forward. Instead of not taking responsibility, he would shoulder others' responsibility. Instead of pointing fingers and blaming others, he would take the blame on himself. Instead of choosing his own way and his own will, he would say, not my will, but your will be done. Instead of shying away from pain, he would endure pain because of his love for us. Instead of selfishly doing what he desired, he would selflessly lay down his own life for us. And instead of saying, my way or the highway, he said, Father, have your way. And he would take our place. He would take our sin on himself, and he would become a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that we might have the confidence to draw near to God's throne and find grace, because every single one of us needs God's grace found in Jesus. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are all in great need because we can't fix ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't fix other people. Other people can't fix you. And you can't fix other people. We are terrible gods. And perhaps you might hear the voice of the Lord even tonight saying, where are you? Where are you? Will you continue to run and hide from him? Or will you repent and believe? Will you stop trying to do things your own way? And will you say, God, have your way in my life. Turn to Jesus. He's our only hope. The one who fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15.
Jesus is the one who crushed the head of Satan by taking the curse of sin off of us and putting it on himself. Jesus gives us the victory to conquer our sin in our lives. And only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can fill you up and make you whole. So if you have any questions at all about anything that we've covered tonight, Man, I'd love to talk with you. I know we have other people here who would love to talk with you. At the end of the service, there's a, there's a table right here. Come up and talk to somebody. If you know that the Lord is working on your heart, come and have a conversation. Don't run and don't hide anymore. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much that Jesus, you didn't respond like Adam and Eve. I thank you for doing what we all have failed to do because we couldn't do it. I thank you for for being a God that is true to your word. You are trustworthy, you are faithful, and you are true. I thank you that even in the midst of a chapter full of rebellion, full of darkness, full of hopelessness. We see a glimmer of hope. We see this gospel promise. We see your mercy. We see your grace. We see the foreshadowing of Jesus. I thank you so much for doing what we could not do. And I pray that you would continue to draw people out of darkness, bring them into the light, continue to advance your kingdom Continue to open up our eyes. Lord, give us the strength to avoid the temptation of our flesh and the enemy and what the world throws at us every day. Help us to say no to ourselves and yes to you, Jesus. It's all for your your name. It's all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.